Blog Talk Radio. The Four Persons, Inc. is a federally registered and licensed 501c3 charity. Any use of any of our content without our permission is prohibited by law. Our purpose is evangelization, education, and social action. Please go to our website at thefourpersons.com or our blog site at thefourpersons.net to make your tax-deductible donation by credit or debit card. You can also send a check to The Four Persons, Inc., P.O. Box 11214, Manassas, Virginia, 20113. To contact us, send us an email at email at thefourpersons.com. listening to the Luke Haskell Show on the Four Persons Network. Luke takes a deep dive every show into history, theology, and scripture. If you want to truly be educated, make way for the hammer of heretics himself, ladies and gentlemen, Luke Haskell. Introduction started that my microphone started working. Well, at least I assume it's still working. Luke, are you there? Luke, are you there? I hear you. Okay. Yeah, I hear you too, but you're a little bit low. Um, Say something again. How How about now? Ah. Got you now. That that was weird. That was weird. We had about ten minutes where we were fighting with microphones and headphones, and it just wouldn't work. And then just all of a sudden, it just started working. It's just crazy. Anyway, how you how you doing tonight? Ah, <laughs> uh, after <laughs> what am I going to say? I'm, I'm still kind of <laughs> racing to get this thing fixed. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, well, it's, and it's, it's weird. <laughs> I literally, I literally I'm kept doing the same thing over and over again, unplugging it, plugging it in, unplugging it, plugging it in, and then it just started working. It's just weird. <laughs> You're telling me. <laughs> I'm doing fine. I think I think the good old boys trying to railroad this program. That's what I think is happening. I think the same thing over again. Over. I did the same thing like two or three times, and this time it worked right before the show started. <laughs> yeah. Well, literally as the show started, really, it's really, it started, it had already started playing the opening, you know, the opening music. So anyway, we're continuing <laughs> on that note. 
we're we're continuing in the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, boy, this has been a it's been a fascinating ride so far, hasn't it? Oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, uh, uh, the once you get off the surface of, of these gospels, uh, they just become a bottomless well because they all tie you back over and over and over and over again to the <laughs> Old Testament, and you could never you, put it together without it. And the thing about it is, um, I, I want to I, I want to be very clear that what me and Luke are doing here in no way, shape, or form should be considered as the be-all study of the man. This is just to get you started. I mean, you could fill up an entire library in your house just based on books and resources written about this one gospel. I mean, when you talk about commentaries and you talk about you know all kinds of biblical resources that get into the uh, you know into the exegesis and the meanings of the words and 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 all of these things. I mean, it's it's almost inexhaustible, is what it is. Now, now we're talking about a book that is twenty-eight chapters long. If my memory serves me correct, is that? Is that right? Um, no, I haven't checked lately. <laughs> I'm sure it's pretty close because we're almost to the bottom of this, cha- this chapter. Hold on. I'm trying to verify that right now. Uh, I don't want to say anything inaccurate. So I got my RSV handled here. Yes. Uh, Matthew 28. 20 is the last verse. 2820 is the last verse of the gospel. So by the time we finish tonight, we're going to be just about halfway. That'll work. So yeah. uh, probably sometime around uh, Thanksgiving, like you, were, yeah. like you were saying. Yeah, that's why I figure about Thanksgiving we'll, we'll, we'll wrap this up. So we're going to pick this up um, from uh, kind of where we left off last week. So you're going to be picking this up, if my if my calculation is correct, starting with Matthew chapter 12, verse 43 will be our... Uh, did we go through the sign of Noah? Did we talk about Jonah? Did we talk about that? We, we The last verse that we covered was 42. That was the last verse we covered, 1242. Okay, well, let's go to uh, 1243, which talks about the return of an unclean spirit. And uh, we'll read and then analyze. So, And when an unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places, seeking rest, and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out. And coming, he findeth it empty, swept, and garnished. Then he goeth and taketh with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is made worse than the first. So shall it be also to this wicked generation." 
when I think of this, it, it brings to mind Peter's reference to dogs who return to their vomit. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, let, let's read that so uh, we get an understanding of what I'm talking about here. For speaking proud words of vanity, they allure by the desires of fleshly righteousness those who for a little while escape, such as converse in error, promising them liberty, whereas they themselves are the slaves of corruption. For by whom a man is overcome, of the same also he is the slave. For flying the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they be again entangled in them and overcome. Their later state is become unto them worse than the former. For it had been better for them to have known the way of justice than after they have known it to turn back from the holy commandment which was delivered to them. For that the true proverb has happened to them. The dog has returned to his vomit and the sow that was washed uh, to her wallow in, in the mire. So when we uh, when it shows a separation from faith, uh, Jesus talks about even more demons coming in. And it seems mm-hmm. like this is kind of uh, uh, on the same theme of Peter here, where he's talking about, uh, you know, the proverb of the dog is re- returned to his vomit. So it's, uh, it, and, and it's I think you can you can take this on a, on a couple of levels here, Luke. It, it obviously, in its most extreme form, this is the person who has apostatized, formally apostatized, having known the right way, turned back towards. Um, you know, formally turned back to his to his life of rejecting God, um, but in in micro form, I mean, it's kind of all of us, isn't it? When when we when we fall back into our old, our old habits, our old um, addictions, our old um, self destructive ways, right? Isn't it? Uh, it, it yeah, it's it, kind it, of. It, it, and we got such an advantage with the sacramental life. Mm-hmm. I mean, we fall but, back into it. And, but I think that only... that's the problem: is that the the sacramental life, the sacraments, the grace, lift us up out of the pit. But we we forget that, and and we kind of our pride kicks in. We're kind of like, okay, God, uh, okay, Lord, I, I got it from here. I can, yeah, I, I'm not going to mess up again. How many, how many times have you and I said that in our life, uh, Lord? Yeah. Lord, I won't let I won't let you down again. I, as soon as I think it's about me and my strength, boy, I'm I'm just setting myself up for a fall. And the, you know that's kind of when the when the seven stronger demons move in. When when we're restored, we it should. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter two that. God's long-suffering forbearance is is meant to lead us to repentance, not to lead us to further pride. It's meant to lead us to more of a dependence on him, more of a reliance on him and realizing our weakness. What did what did Jesus say to 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 Paul? My strength is manifest in your weakness. And I think that's we need to recognize that weakness, right? To Paul, yeah. Uh, when, uh, Paul, yeah I mean, Paul said that Paul said that uh, that uh, when when he was yeah, praying about yeah, the thorn yeah. in the flesh, 
and and God says to him, "My strength is manifest in your weakness." Yeah, I, I remember. I remember what you're talking about now. Yeah, it's uh, it's. I I think it's all it's almost liberating. It's almost like a you know a perfect psychology in the faith to just understand that we have nothing without God. Then mm-hmm. it just it, it creates that humility, and uh, you know, like the proverb says, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the holy is prudence. Where that fear is just realizing that you know we can't do anything without Him. So he fills us. You know, if we're empty, he fills us and gives us his strength through our weaknesses, through our emptying of ourselves. And yet there's this paradox because the flip side of that is then, because it is empowering, he does have expectations of us. That that it's the flip side of that is, well, without you, I can do nothing, but with you, I can do all things. And so, you know, sometimes it's very, very, it's hard that the human desire to understand kicks in and we have a hard time differentiating between, okay, what is, what is God doing and what am I doing? And that this, this, this object of synergy, this, this concept of synergy, boy, it's, it's, it's just so hard to digest. It's so hard to understand. It's it's kind of something that we just have to go with. It's kind of like adjusting the sails and letting the wind take us where it will take us. But we have to adjust the sail. The wind can change direction, but if we don't adjust the sails, uh, it doesn't do us any good. Yeah, what Paul said, it's not now I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So it just comes down to what would Jesus do? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, very, if we were to simplify the whole thing, and we just follow what Jesus would do. So we're on Matthew twelve forty six through fifty. Yeah, this is and, where it gets fun because this is where this is where Jesus insults his mother, right? Yeah, this will be a fun one. <laughs> As he was yet speaking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and his brethren stood without, seeking to speak to him. And one said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without, seeking thee. But he answered him that told him, said, Who is my mother and who are my brethren? And stretching forth his hand towards his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of my Father that is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. So Matthew is not putting down his family, uh, is not showing Jesus putting down his family relationship here, but showing how Jesus raises the spiritual nature of the family of God above the physical. Uh, In the physical, he already told us that he did not come to bring peace but a sword, uh, we can even see this today where you have both Protestants and Catholics together in, in families. So Jesus mm-hmm. is describing a spiritual family here, almost expressing an ordination. So and stretching forth his hand toward his disciples, he said, behold, my mother and my brethren. So 
in this context, who, who, is, who is a mother? One who brings forth and perpetuates the word of God. One who is, uh, who is doing the will of God and, and expressing that charity to others. So in no way is he putting down his own mother because she is the original Christian who said yes to Christ. So she is the first to bring forth the word of God as the true Ark of the Covenant, also trying to use these verses to say that Jesus was referring to siblings is out of context with the entire message of, uh, of Christ and does not take into consideration first that the book of Matthew is actually a transliteration from the Hebrew to the Greek. Second, that there was no word for cousin in the Hebrew language uh, when Matthew wrote his gospel. Uh, uh, we'll read uh, Tertullian for some uh, for some context. Matthew also issued a written gospel among the Hebrews in their own dialect, while Peter and Paul were preaching in Rome and laying the foundation of the church. After their departure, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, did also hand down to us in writing what had been preached by Peter. Luke, also the companion of Paul, recorded in a book the gospel preached by him. Afterwards, John, the disciple of the Lord, who also had leaned upon his breast, did himself publish a gospel during his residence at Ephesus in Asia. So the book of Matthew in Greek is a transliteration of the Hebrew into Greek. So in the Hebrew language at the time of the apostles, there, there was no single word for cousin. So, uh, uh, circumcision is is fulfillment in, in, in baptism. We are no longer Jews or Gentiles, male nor female, free men nor slave, as Paul says, because we've been baptized into Christ Jesus. And Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, but friends. So if we look at the absence of a word for cousin, it almost points us to this universal family also. The word was developed. It was just developed later. <laughs> In Genesis 12:5, it says that Lot was Abraham's nephew. It also says it in Genesis 14:12, but in Genesis 14:4, it says that Lot is Abraham's brother. So, and when Abraham, uh, he says, and when Abraham, Abram hear that his brother was taken captive, it also says in Genesis 14:16 that Lot was his brother again. So, the words that were used to refer to cousins created compound structures, son of my brother, etc., uh, Simon bar Jonah, uh, to list different cousins of different fathers could create a, a long list. And we're not even, uh, you know, looking at that context of, of creating a list, you know, in, in the, in the scripture there. So in the controversial passage in Matthew's gospel, where Jesus's so-called brothers are mentioned, Matthew's objective was not to define the brothers, but the ignorance of those who were speaking about Christ. Uh, I would ask our Protestant brothers and sisters, can you name a so-called brother of Jesus without giving a name of someone who is defined as a cousin? You can't. It's, it's very easy to put it all together. Every single name you could assign to a cousin. So when lists are given, uh, you know, this becomes very complicated. And so, it was done away with it in many cases. And in Hebrew, many times cousins are simply referred to as brothers or, or, or sisters. So in Greek, the transliteration is the word adolphos, 
the Greek simply copies the Hebrew without taking into consideration the tradition that cousins were often referred to as brothers. So from the beginning of Christianity, Mary was always uh, addressed as uh, a virgin. Uh, to give more context, we read in Eusebius' History of the Church, and this was a faith very early on in the church. So what usually, if you think, if something's written down describing an aspect of faith, then it's it's just natural to think that that same understanding was present before it was written down. Yeah, mm-hmm. so uh, this is very close to apostolic times. Uh, uh, this is Eusebius writing about a letter from Gaul uh, during the persecution of 150 A.D. And if John died around, you know, 50 years earlier, uh, then uh, we could say that this was most likely an understanding that was present in John's time. So Eusebius writes, but the intervening time was not wasted nor fruitless to them, for by their patience and measureless compassion of Christ was manifested. For through their continued life, the dead were made alive, and the witnesses showed favor to those who had failed to witness. And the virgin mother had much joy in receiving alive those whom she had brought forth as dead. So you see here, in early understanding, and this would go along with the understanding we just gave of Matthew, Mary in heaven, eternal virgin, and mother of the church. And from the earliest years of Christianity, as the apostles went you know, east and west, uh, north and south, this belief came forth from all the known churches. And some of the earliest churches were actually named after the mother of God. Right. Two, two ways I want to go with this, Luke two ways I want to extrapolate on what you said. The first is that if, if, if we want to take this idea that brothers and sisters, that the words that are translated into brothers and sisters, for instance, you mentioned Adelphos, if these words are only to be used in the biological case, well, explain what Paul meant when he said that Jesus appeared to 200 brothers, the word Adelphos. That's a pretty big family, wouldn't you say? <laughs> but, but I have I have an even better example, one that's going to be very, very troubling. If we believe, literally, that James and Joseph were brothers of Jesus, physical, biological brothers, well, then we have a problem. Because it says that James and Joseph were the sons of Mary, the wife of Cleopas. And Mm -hmm. a bigger problem is that it says that Mary, the wife of Cleopas, was at the foot of the cross, and she was the sister of the mother of Jesus. Now, think about where I'm going with this, because if you're taking the literalist translation here, you had Mary the mother of Jesus, who had two sons, James and Joseph. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, had a sister who was also named Mary, who also had sons named James and Joseph. That was the (laughs) least imaginative family in the world, if that is the case. Okay, well, Mary... The mother of the wife of Cleopas was actually the sister-in-law of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary, the wife of Cleopas, was actually the sister of Joseph. So 
So this is where you when you when you don't take words in their proper context, you you get into these kind of confusions. Now the other thing is this this sense where Jesus says, and this is one of the verses that Protestants try to trap us on, where Jesus says, Well, who does the will of my father is my mother and my brother and sister. And I've had Protestants that tell me, so well see in a spiritual sense, I'm like Jesus' mother. I'm, I, I could be Jesus' mother. That's not what Jesus is saying here. There's only one <laughs> person in Scripture that's ever called the mother of Jesus. Now, what is what is Jesus doing here? Well, it's the same thing, the woman in the crowd that says, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that nursed you. And Jesus says, rather, and the word is menunge, which means it, it's a... It's not a word of contrast, but a word of emphasis. Rather, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey. So what Jesus is saying is, yes, she is blessed because she's my mother. But more than that, because she heard the word of God and obeyed. So what is Jesus doing here? Exactly. What's that? (laughs) I was just adding the emphasis, be it done to me according to your word. Right. What Jesus is doing is emphasizing exactly what Elizabeth said. When you look at Elizabeth, when Mary greets her, Elizabeth greets Mary with two blessings. The first blessing is, blessed is the fruit of your womb. And the second blessing is, blessed are you who heard the word of God and obeyed. Now, when you take this in the context, you take all of this in the context of Genesis 3 and uh First Kings 2, John 19, and Revelation 12, Jesus is saying that those who do the will of God are his brothers and sisters, and they are the children of his mother, that his mother is their mother. And that's what we see in Revelation 12, 17. And, and, and we also see it in John 19 when Jesus says, this is how it's recorded when Jesus says to the disciple, behold your mother. So that's what's happening here is that when you do the will of God, you are a brother and sister to Jesus, but you also have Mary as your mother. This is what Jesus is saying. And we enter that we enter that family too by doing the will of God. You know, when he said, uh, when he brought us to baptism, we're doing the will of God. But what did baptism do? If uh, we've gone over this before, but this will bring us, uh, this will actually further enlighten this family uh, idea. Uh, when Peter said, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins, for the promises for you and for your children. Not many people pick up on that word promise because he's talking about the fulfillment of the promise of Abraham where God said he would, that he would multiply him as, as, as numerous as the stars. He would have this huge family. And so then we go to Paul, and Paul in Romans 9 talks about uh, the, is talking about the promise when uh, he says that uh, uh, the family of God actually comes from uh, uh, through Sarah and Isaac, because Isaac was a miraculous birth, and baptism is a miraculous birth. 
So we enter the family of God uh, through the seed of Abraham, through this miraculous birth, which again, in the context of Abraham, Paul in Galatians uh, 3.26 says, you, have, you are no longer a Gentile or Jew, free men or slave, male or female, because you've been baptized into Christ Jesus and heirs of the promise of Abraham. So then if we look at this spiritual family and we put it together with what you just said, you know, if we are the actual family of God entered through, you know, uh, uh, our baptism, then again, you know, that makes Mary, you know, our, our spiritual mother. So, and uh, Peter in second Peter one, he says, we're partakers of the divine nature. So it's just the, the buildup of what baptism does and what we enter into it through it, you know, if uh, I'm going to say hypothetically for those who don't believe, if it's true, if this actually is entrance into the family of God, partakers of divine nature, then anything that, uh, you know, puts you against baptism is, is pure evil. Yeah, good point. So, we're done with Matthew chapter 12. And uh, so let's move on to uh, Matthew 13, 1. Mm-hmm. The same day Jesus, going out of the house, sat by the seaside, and great multitudes were gathered together unto him, so that he went up into a boat and sat, and all the multitudes stood on the shore. And he spoke to them many things in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went forth to sow, and whilst he soweth, some fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and ate them up, and others, uh, and others, some fell upon stony ground, where they had not much earth, and they sprung up immediately, because they had no deepness on earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And others fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. The others fell upon good ground, and they brought forth fruit, some an hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And his disciples came and said to him, why speakest thou to them in parables? Who answered and said to them, Because to you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. For that hath to him shall be given, and he shall abound, but he that hath not from him shall be taken away, that also which he hath. Therefore, do I speak to them in parables? Because seeing they see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. A lot of times uh, uh, we discuss the deeper mysteries of faith. I use the word images. Uh, God conveys many of his, his truths to the mind through spiritual imagery, which is absorbed by the soul, you know, down through the subconscious. And one, one of the greatest examples of this is, is the meeting tent. In Titus 3.5, Paul teaches that we are saved by the law of regeneration, 
through the renovation or regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Paul's referring to an image, the bronze lava that was in front of the curtain that gave entrance into the holies. In Hebrews 10.20, we hear of the new covenant where Paul talks about the image of the veil being the flesh of Christ. <laughs> yet, yet in Ephesians 5.29, he also refers to the flesh of Christ as the church. So in this imagery of types fulfilled, we enter the, the flesh of Christ, the body of Christ, is church through the true bronze lava, which is baptism. And, and let me says, interrupt you for just one second. When when Luke refers to lava, it's like a basin. For for those who are not familiar with that term, it's like a it's like a basin. It's like a wash basin. And it was in front of the veil uh, at the meeting tent, where the Levitical priests needed to wash in the lava before they entered the veil. And the penalty for not washing there is death. And uh, if if yep. it, it sounds kind of pretty pretty similar, pretty steep penalty. <laughs> Yeah, and it sounds kind of similar to these words. If if you picture this imagery, unless you're born of water and spirit, you should not enter the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, and where are we entering now? Well, I just read in Ephesians five twenty nine that we're entering the veil, which is the flesh of Christ. So there's your kingdom of heaven, and uh, we're about to discuss that a little more. As we discuss, the scriptures are inspired by God. The imagery of Jesus' teaching from the boat is an image that can be understood spiritually as the word of God going forth from the bark of Peter out into the world, uh, the crowds on the shoreline. The boat of Peter, of course, is the image of the church. So Jesus speaks in parables to those outside the church, but to those inside the church, he speaks plainly. We discussed earlier in this presentation about what Jesus meant when he said, do not give what is holy to the dogs. And uh, he didn't say it plainly uh, or give a, a clear understanding uh, in, in the scriptures. But we go to the church. And the Didache shows us uh, what meant by this in plain speaking. And the Didache explains that no one is to receive the Eucharist until they are first back to the church because Jesus says, give not what is holy to the dogs. So Didache written about 70 A.D., before some of the apostles were even uh, martyred. So again, Matthew is showing us images of the kingdom that is being established here. And we just saw an image of this kingdom through Paul that we're not just talking a physical kingdom. We're talking actually, you know, the mystical body of Christ, the flesh of Christ, which is also sacramental, a physical sign that gives spiritual grace. The physical sign, the supreme sacrament, is the entire church. So image of, of sacramental kingdom that many will not be able to, to visualize, or they'll see and not see. As I have said, if, if you believe that the body of Christ is only a metaphor and not a spiritual reality, then you will not visualize the kingdom in your soul. Uh, it was God who said they will see and not see and hear and not hear. So uh, from the Jerome commentary, let, let's... Uh, this will give you a little more insight on that. The audience must participate if the parable is to have effect. The parable will be explained in verses 18 to 23. Supposing the explanation had arisen later, we would surmise that the sower is either God, Jesus, one of God's emissaries, even Lady Wisdom. The seed is either divine revelation or the kingdom of God. The different soils represent the different human receptions. The message is that despite some failures, the sower's work ultimately succeeds for the most part. 
the sign of success is the fruit bearing of the recipients. Uh, so the fruit that is bared is united to the bark of Peter also. This is all inside this image of the mystical body and the flesh of Christ. So let me focus on verse 12 from above. For he that hath to him shall be given, and he shall abound. But to he that hath not, from him shall be taken away even what he hath. Luke, where do we see that again? Where do, where do we see that image again? And, and I'm getting a little bit ahead, but we see that again in Matthew chapter 25 in the parable of the talents. To the one who had five talents, he was given five more. To the, uh, the one who had ten, ten more. But the one who only had one took it and buried it in the ground. And Jesus says something that seems to be shocking, but he says, take the talent from that man and give it to the one who has ten. So that even what he doesn't have, he only has one, take it from him and give it to the one who has ten. Well, what is Jesus referring to here? He's referring to grace. Referring to grace. And there's two dynamics to grace that he's referring to. One is that we have to multiply it. That we have to cooperate with that grace and multiply it. And this is why Jesus says to to you know, him that has will be given. So the person who goes out and multiplies his grace, it will be multiplied even more. Even more will be given to that person. But the person who buries their grace doesn't cooperate with it. Even what he has will be taken away from him. And the second dynamic here is that it shows that our grace, the grace earned by Luke and me, can be used for the benefit of others. People can benefit from our grace, from our graces. So it's just a, a fascinating dynamic here. And once again, we see the absurdity of this faith alone ideology. Now, the laver, which is a basin for washing, is clearly shown as a typology of baptism. And outside of the Catholic understanding of baptismal grace, we simply cannot understand synergy, and the parable here doesn't make any sense. The sower and the seed doesn't change. It is the receptivity to the seed. Jesus conveys the kingdom of God as a covenantal relationship. The word covenant appears over 400 times in Scripture. A covenant relationship entails an offer and a response. The free gift of grace is offered in the new bronze laver, which is in the sacraments, baptism firstly, and the seed sown is the invitation to respond to that grace. And you'll hear more about this as Luke continues. Please continue. So Matthew 14 through 35. And the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled in them who saith, by hearing you shall hear and shall not understand, and seeing you shall see and shall not perceive. For the heart of this people is grown gross, and with their ears they have been dull of hearing, and their eyes they have shut, lest at any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and be converted, and I should heal them. 
But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For amen, I say to you, many prophets and just men have desired to see the things that you see and have not seen them, and to hear the things that you you hear and have not heard them. Hear you therefore the parable of the sower. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, here cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is he that receiveth the seed by the wayside. And he that receiveth the seed upon the stony ground is he that heareth the word and immediately receiveth with joy. Yet hath he not root in himself, but is only for a time. And when there riseth tribulation and persecution because of the word, he is presently scandalized. And he that receiveth the seed among thorns is he that heareth the word and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choketh up the word, and he becometh fruitless. But he that receiveth the seed upon good ground is he that heareth the word, and understandeth, and beareth fruit, and yieldeth one and an hundredfold, and another sixty, and another thirty. Another parable he proposed to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like to a man that stoweth good seed in his field. But while men were asleep, his enemy came and oversowed cockle among the wheat and went his way. And when the blade was sprung up and had brought forth fruit, then appeared also the cockle. And the servant of the good man of the house coming said to him, Sir, didst thou not sow good seed in thy field? Whence then hath it cockle? And he said to them, An enemy hath done this. And the servant said to him, Wilt thou that we go and gather it up? And he said, No, lest perhaps gathering up the cockle, you root up the wheat altogether with it. Suffer both to grow until the harvest. And in the time the harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather up first the cockle and bind it into bundles to burn. But the wheat gather ye into my barn. Another parable he proposed unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain, a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field, which is the least indeed of all seeds. But when it is grown up, it is greater than all herbs and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and dwell in the branches thereof. Another parable he spoke to them, the kingdom of heaven is like to, to, uh, to leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal until the whole was leavened. All these things Jesus spoke in parables to the multitudes, and without parables he did speak to them, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden from the foundation of the world. I'm going to take a drink. (laughs) need some water. We're going through the whole gospel. (laughs) Yeah. So with these parables, the kingdom in, in mind, let's read a little of the Haddock commentary on uh, verse uh, 1311. So. <clears throat> so. So. 
To you it is given. The mysteries of the kingdom of God are not disclosed to the scribes and Pharisees who were unwilling to believe in him. Though it was the duty and occupation of the scribes to expound the sacred oracles to others. But to those who adhered closely to Christ and believed in him, let us therefore run in company with the apostles to Jesus Christ, that he may disclose to us the mysteries of his gospel. Thomas Aquinas writes, Can we then suppose for a single moment that the mere putting of a Bible into everyone's hand will convert the world? The command given to the apostles and their successors in the ministry is, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, etc., teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you all the days of the world. Matthew 28, 20, there is not a single word to them about writing. From 2,500 years, from Adam to Moses, were the patriarchal family and other servants of God in a state of ignorance concerning either the positive instructions of the Almighty respecting the Sabbath day, the rites of sacrifice, or their moral duties. Yet there was no scripture during all that period. For more than 400 years after Jesus Christ, the canon of scripture, as now generally received by Protestants, remained unsettled. The apostles and evangelists had done nothing more than publish their writings and disseminate them to every pagan country. Not a single nation, not a single pagan, would have abandoned their gods to believe in a crucified Jesus. To them it is not given, i.e. to such as were unworthy, and by hardening their hearts have made themselves unworthy. Right. So whether it's the fruit from the sower seed, the tree from the mustard seed, or the cakes from the flour, the metaphor always leads to the same paradigm, cause and effect, invitation and response. Time and time again, the Pharisees thought they had it figured out that salvation was through the strict and mechanical adherence to the law. But Paul is saying in Romans 6 that we're not under the law, but under grace. This is not a jettisoning of the moral law, but it's a conversion from the Mosaic law to grace, which is a conversion from the slavery of robotic adherence and obedience to a tree uh, to a true rebirth of the heart to love and mercy and this is what Jesus is trying to change trying to change their hearts and and uh, you know the Pharisees it was all about the law the law the law the law the law and Jesus was trying to change their hearts and the bible says that he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts yeah, for those who are uh, didn't listen to the uh, earlier shows, uh, to put this in uh, perspective, uh, before Christ, you had things like the Code of Hammurabi, an eye for an eye, and then you had the Mosaic Law, uh, which was given because the Jews were 400 years in Egypt and they were tainted by you know paganism and and this and this you know the image of self you know how. They they looked at things differently. They did not have this love of Christ. They were under a rule of uh, uh, of law that was a strict schoolmaster for a child. That's the definition of a pedagogy. So 
the Mosaic law was rule, fear, and temporal punishment. So uh, a radical change occurred, you know, from this thinking of Code of Hammurabi and and just following the Mosaic law out of rule and and fear. Mm -hmm. A radical change occurred with with the coming of Christ. And when Christ came, uh, uh, he sent the Holy Spirit into the world. And the law was written on our hearts. And this law that, you know, even the atheists, you know, uh, feel this law to one point or another because it's uh, it's a law of conscience. But this law in Matthew, we're called to take this law, which is grace given freely for the world. And we're called through grace also to raise it to the attitudes through our love of the gift of the cross. Right. And, you know, Luke, I think if we were to make a modern equivalent of what they were doing, Sharia. Sharia would be a modern equivalent. Most people that follow Sharia law do not follow Sharia law out of love. They follow it out of fear. Uh, And this is not the, and this is what Jesus said when, when he said, Understand what I mean when I say I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This didn't mean that the sacrifice of Christ was not necessary. This did not mean that the sacrifice of the mass is not valid. That's not what Jesus is saying. But but they had no love. Everything was 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 driven by it would you know they were taskmasters. Everything was driven by the by the taskmaster's rod rather than by love, which should be at the root of the Christian message. It should be at the root of what we are as believers and followers of God. If it doesn't flow from love, it doesn't have much value, does it? And you just picked up on something that's that's, that's really fascinating. Uh, Muhammad was basically, you know, uh, plagiarizing the the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. But look at the image of God that's created in Islam. It's the taskmaster. It's the image of a God who is dealing with people who do not have that grace and that to the world through Christ. So it created a continuation of the taskmaster. Right. Yeah. So we're on Matthew 13, let's do 36 through 52. Then having sent away the multitudes, he came into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Expound to us the parable of the cockle of the field, who made answer and said to them, He that soweth the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world, and the good seed are the children of the kingdom, and the cockle are the children of the wicked one. And the enemy that sowed them is the devil." But the harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. Even as cockle, therefore, is gathered up and burnt with fire, so shall it be at the end of the world. The Son of Man shall send his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all scandals and them that work iniquity, and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the just shine as the sun. In the kingdom of their father, he that hath ears, let him hear. 
The kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hidden in a field, which a man having found hid it, and for joy therefore goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like to a merchant seeking good pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went his way and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like to a net cast into the sea and gathering together all kinds of fishes, which when it was filled, they drew out and sitting by the shore, they chose out the good into the vessels, but the bad they cast forth. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall go out and shall separate the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, have ye understood all these things? They, they say to him, yes. He said unto them, therefore, every scribe instructed in the kingdom of heaven is like to a man that is a householder who bringeth forth out of his treasure new things and old. One of the things our, our Protestant brothers and sisters do not see is that the kingdom of heaven that is on earth as it is in heaven is in a transition state. Uh, the church often uses the analogy of the church on a pilgrim's journey to its fulfillment. Uh, Jerome's commentary says, the field is the world, the cosmos here, refers to the human world, humanity, the evil one. Evil is here personified, uh, but it is named the devil in the next verse, verse 41, his kingdom. This phrase has been in the past been used to make a distinction between the kingdom of the Son, the present church, and the kingdom of God. But this distinction seems unfounded. The kingdom of God is given to the Son of Man, and he will bring it to earth in its fullness at the close of the age. Uh, Haddock tells us, uh, like unto a treasure, this hidden treasure is the gospel of Christ, which conducts to the kingdom of heaven. Thus he who by the knowledge which gospel affords has found the kingdom of heaven should purchase it at the expense of everything most dear and dear to him. He cannot pay too great a price for his purchase. So this eternal kingdom faith opens to your view, but it does not put you in possession without good works. Right. You know, the parable of the wheat and the cockle, or, or in its companion, um, in the other Gospels, its companion uh, story, is the wheat, the wheat and the tares. It's a fascinating story if you understand the historical context, because when fully grown, this particular weed is indistinguishable from actual wheat. Okay. <laughs> To the human eye, you can't distinguish the difference, but poisonous. <laughs> it's poisonous when it's con consumed. What a, co a compelling likeness to the false preachers and hypocrites of our day. Jesus then gives us the image of the, tre of the treasure hidden in the field and the pearl of grace price, and this tells us that all workers of iniquity will be condemned. The message here couldn't be clearer. The true believers will have to pay a great price. And there is a cost, and faith alone will not do it. So expanding on the parable of the wheat and the tares. So 
when you read that parable, it says, the, the first question is, well, Master, didn't you sow good seed? He said, well, an enemy has done this. Well, that would actually happen because the the distinguishing difference between the wheat and the tares is in the seed. That's where you recognize it. And they would make sure to sift out all of these bad seeds so that they sold, as the parable says, good seed. Well, later on, your enemies would come along and they would sow this bad seed into your fields because the tares grew up along the wheat. And this would make you lose your reputation with your customers because your customers would say, well, don't, don't buy from Luke. His, he's got tares among his wheat. Well, what, is, what does that sound like? Does that, does that sound like an attack on the Catholic Church today? Don't follow the Catholic I'll, Church. I'll from inside the church. I mean, you get very, you know, very holy bishops talking about the road to hell paid with bishops. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just so clear. The metaphor here is so clear. Uh, and then they mm-hmm. ask Jesus, do you want us to pull up the tares? Do you want us to pull up the weeds? And Jesus is like, no, don't don't uproot the tares now. We'll wait until the end of the age, and we'll pull up the weeds and uh, the, we'll pull up the wheat and the tares together, and the tares will be bundled up and thrown into the fire, while the wheat will be gathered into barns. And it's just it's striking when you understand the first century audience would have understood this. Luke is what is what I'm getting at. So this is something that's lost. On the later generations. Well, I was saying, but can't we just excommunicate a few of them at least? <laughs> yeah, there's a a, a, a few that uh, that I, I could mention that I'd like to start with, but I digress. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. <laughs> okay, we're at Matthew thirteen fifty four. <clears throat> I'm losing my voice. <laughs> and, I understand that too. Into... <laughs> I can imagine you're you're constantly doing these shows. It's so, so much fun, though. I'm enjoying this so much. It's this is such a labor of love. I, I hope you feel the same way. Oh, definitely, definitely. And coming into his own country, he taught them in their synagogues, so that they wondered and said, "How can how came this man by his wisdom and miracles?" He came un, into his own country. Jesus explained that a prophet is not recognized by his own people. So <clears throat> let's move on. Thirteen fifty four through fifty eight. So. And coming into his own country, he taught them in their synagogues so that they wondered and said, how came this man by by this wisdom and miracles? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not mother mother called Mary and his brethren James, Joseph, uh, Simon, and Jude? Let's stop right there. I I, want to Uh, amplify. This is what we talked about a few minutes ago. His mother is Mary and his brothers are James and Joseph. So remember, this is the family with two Marys in the same family. And each of the Marys has a son, James and Joseph, right? Remember, it's the least imaginative family in the world. So, anyway, and they're all cousins. 
<laughs> What's that? And they're all accounted for as cousins. <laughs> yeah, I was being facetious. Please continue. And his sisters, are they not all with us? Whence, therefore, hath he held all these? And they were scandalized in his regard. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. And he wrought not many miracles there because of their unbelief. So Protestants try to use these verses to prove that Mary was not a perpetual version, and we went over that. Mm-hmm. And uh, as with many other examples, they they do this by seeing Scripture through a literalist understanding of just examining the words when the literal is is, is just a much more honest approach. And this encompasses everything. A literal approach takes into consideration everything that is available in order to develop an honest uh, exegetical examination. Uh, So first off, the prophet is not recognized by his own people. So this question about Jesus' brothers is in a negative context. Those who are making this Let me interrupt you for just a second, because I think the point that you're making needs to be expounded on. It's so clear. When Luke is talking about the difference between a literal context and a literist context, let me explain. Not all things that are true are literally true. Tell Luke that, hey, Luke, I'm, I'm just having a really bad day. I'm going, through, I'm going through a lot of stuff. Could you pray for me? I'm being literal. Okay? And if I tell Luke, hey, Luke. I'm I'm going through a tough time. I'm carrying the weight of the world on my shoulders right now. Now, I'm no longer being literal, but I'm not being dishonest either. I'm using hyperbole. And Luke understands what I mean when I'm saying it. It's, it's, It's a use of language. And you need to understand the use of language. And there's different uses of language in the scriptures, especially in the New Testament. Uh, and not only are there different linguistic forms, but there's different transliterations. When we talk about Matthew, we're talking about a book that went from Aramaic to Greek to Latin to English, and things get lost in the transliterations. That's why some of these verses cannot be taken literally. doesn't mean we don't believe them. just means that the literalist, the literist interpretation is not the most accurate interpretation all of the time. That's all Luke is saying. Please continue. So those who are making the statement are trying to prove that Jesus is not special by pointing out a genetic origin of what they believe was one who came from a normal birth. Uh, so they're trying to discount him as as anything uh, you know special, even though they heard about all these miracles going all going on. So just like Protestants take the word of the Pharisees over God, when God said, receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven. And the Pharisees said only God can forgive sins. They take the words of the Pharisees in trying to discredit the holiness of the perpetual virginity of Mary. So it, it's amazing how Catholics actually have to defend the holiness of the mother of God. Mm-hmm. So few minutes out to defend the perpetual virginity of, of our, our spiritual mother here. So Luke shows us that the angel Gabriel addressed Mary not as Mary, but as full of grace. 
just like with Abraham, Sarah, and, and Simon. When there's a name change, there is an expression of a higher function. God is establishing a higher purpose for the one he gives the name change to. So uh, hail full of grace, our, our hail in the Greek, uh, oh no, I'll blow this, kekeratomene in Greek. Yeah, you nailed it. You nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> Which in Greek is more properly defined as hail you who have been perfected in grace. It doesn't give the name of Mary here, but the name perfected in grace. And where there's a name change, as, as, as we saw, there's, there, there's this higher calling. So one would ask why the word kikertomene uses only, uh, is used only once in the entire volume of Scripture. And it's used in Scripture when the angel Gabriel addressed Mary, of course. So why is the word used nowhere else in secular Greek literature because it was created as a name for, for, for one specific purpose. So, and uh, this is some Greek scholar talking here. The procedural name for such a unique word is hapax legomena, uh, uh, meaning which comes to us from Greek means expressed once. So, so one should ask why the word is a feminine, present, perfect, passive, the voice participle of a verb, which means previously graced, or past tense, to have been made graceful in the past, or what does it sound like? The Immaculate Conception. So, can sin reside in perfection? Was Eve before the fall without sin? Of course she was. So it is kind of ridiculous to think that <clears throat> Jesus would make his mother, you know, the the mother, the uh, you know, the hypostatic union of God and man at a time, less than Eve. And why did the angel Gabriel dress Mary with the salutation of hail? The past participle, previously perfected in grace, or the immaculate conception and queen mother. So we went over this much earlier, but for those who have not listened to the earlier shows, it bears repeating. Tertullian, in recording how the Gospels were established, wrote, uh, Matthew also issued uh, a written Gospel among the Hebrews in their own dialect. So the book of Matthew in, in Greek is a transliteration of the Hebrew into Greek. So in the Hebrew language at the time of the Apostles, there was no single word for cousin. So circumcision is fulfilled in baptism. Paul says we are no longer Jews or Gentiles, male or female, free men or slave. So in Genesis 12:5, it says that Lot was Abraham's nephew. It also says in Genesis uh, 14, 12, that Lot was Abraham's uh, brother. And when Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, it also says in Genesis 14:6 that Lot was Abraham's brother again. So yeah. Let me go. And, uh, All right. Well, Luke is, well, Luke is finding his place. I want to point out the word that the angel Gabriel is recorded in Greek as saying to Mary before he says, the word kere. And the word kere means hail. And it's interesting that the word kere 
is only used two other times in the New Testament. And it's used towards Jesus. Hail, King of the Jews, and hail, Rabbi. It's a salutation of royalty. The modern equivalent would be your majesty. That would be the modern linguistic equivalent. So the angel Gabriel is actually saluting Mary with a term of royalty. He's recognizing Mary as his queen. Okay? Because the if 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 the king of uh if if the king of the Davidic kingdom is in fact the king of heaven, well then the queen mother of the Davidic kingdom is the queen of heaven. Because of her office. Does that make her equal with Christ? No. Does it make her above Christ? Of course not. But it makes her the queen of heaven because of her office. And here the angel Gabriel himself, imagine the image, Luke. The angel Gabriel himself, one of the seven angels before the throne of God, here is kneeling before this 15-year-old girl, recognizing her as his as his queen it's it's just a it's a mind-boggling breathtaking image isn't it yes definitely definitely and then for further support you know we talked about the types and heavenly realities we talked about james at the council of jerusalem uh quoting amos basically seeing that the the kingdom of david has been reestablished in the church and then we look at what solomon did for his mother uh, Solomon is the image of Christ. Mary's, uh, I mean, his mother's in the image of Mary. And what did he do? He set a, a, a cathedra, a chair, to his right for her and said, ask, mother, because I cannot deny your petitions. And the court knew about this. And so the court knew that Solomon's mother had his ear all the time. So the court actually went to the mother before they went before the king in order that the mother convinced through her love to the son. So and Jesus set up this imagery for him and his mother. All right. And something else that I want to kind of point out to uh, to emphasize this. We're going to get to this later, but a little bit of foreshadowing here. The mother of James and John, and isn't this interesting? It says the mother of James and John, not the mother of Jesus. <laughs> the mother of James and John will make a a, um, a surprising request, and this is in chapter 20 that we'll get to later. The request that she makes is that one of her sons would sit to Jesus' right side in the throne uh, in the kingdom of heaven and one to his left side. Now, Jesus' response to that was very interesting, Luke. He says, to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. Notice Jesus doesn't say, well, no one will get to sit to my right hand or my left. He affirms that someone indeed will sit to his right and his left, but it won't be James and John. He said it's for those for whom it is prepared. Well, 
we already filled that you just filled that puzzle in it's prepared for the queen mother will sit at his right now who will sit at his left some have speculated that the one who would sit to his left will be joseph now that's just speculation but we have scripture to support the one who will sit at the right hand of the king is mary so it's very interesting so jesus almost could have said here hey don't try to take my mother's seat here (laughs) that ain't happened yeah that is new to me that's great you know see we kind of learn as we go along off of each other too yeah So just to finish this up, uh, Eusebius writing to, uh, the, in the history of the church, book five, writing about a letter written to the church at Gaul, says, but the intervening time was not wasted nor fruitless to them. By their patience, the measureless compassion of Christ was manifested, for through their continued life, the dead were made alive, and the witnesses showed favor to those who had failed to witness, and the Virgin Mother had much joy in receiving alive those who she had brought forth is dead. So here we have Mary in heaven, eternal virgin, mother of the church. And uh, from the earliest days, you know, the, the, the uh, some of the earliest churches were, were named after the mother of God. So uh, I kind of repeated myself. here. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, so let's move on. Mm-hmm. It's one of those days. I can't talk either. <laughs> so, I have those kind of days uh, often. <laughs> <laughs> so, swear, Matthew, I'm going to have a little wine with my steak tonight. That's it. <laughs> mm-hmm. There you go. So, Matthew 14, 1 through 11. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the fame of Jesus. And he said, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. And therefore... Mighty works show forth themselves in him. For Herod hath apprehended John and bound him and put him into prison because of Herodotus, his brother's wife. For John said to him, It is not lawful for thee to have her. And having a mind to put him to death, he feared the people because they esteemed him as a prophet. But on Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodotus, Herodotus danced before them and played Herodias. Yeah. Whereupon he promised, and I won't remember that next time. (laughs) (laughs) Whereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatsoever she would ask of him. But she, being instructed before by her mother, said, Give me here in a dish the head of John the Baptist. And the king was struck sad. Yet because of his oath, and for them that sat with him at table, he commanded, it to be given. And he sent and beheaded John in the prison. And his head was brought in a dish, and it was given to the damsel, and she brought it to her mother. Uh, Herod is tetrarch, uh, which is a Greek uh, word meaning one who rules over a fourth of a kingdom, tetraphorius, I guess. Herod ruled over uh, the Galilee. John was in prison for around a year before he was put to death. And John put Herod on Front Street for his unlawful marriage. So John said Herod had sinned for taking his brother's wife while his brother was still alive. So he was committed 
adultery and incest, which is prohibited in Leviticus 20.10. But it appears that Herod still felt remorse and maybe even a foreboding because he appears to be thinking that John the Baptist has come back with you know, supernatural powers. <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh, he said, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. And therefore, mighty works show forth uh, themselves in him. Mm-hmm. And uh, for those listening, uh, it's a long-standing tradition in the Catholic Church uh, of of origin. I'm I'm not sure of the origin, but the long-standing tradition is that John the Baptist uh, was martyred on August 29th. But you notice that the Church doesn't commemorate John the Baptist on that date. Uh, at least that's not the major celebration of John the Baptist. It's something that is commemorated. But the main feast day of John the Baptist is actually June 24th, which is his birthday. And it's interesting that the only two other figures in the Catholic faith that are commemorated on their birthdays, the only other two prominent figures are Mary, whose birthday is separated on September 8th, and Jesus, whose birthday is separated on December 25th. So interesting that uh, that John the Baptist is one of the uh, one of the saints, one of the martyrs, whose uh, official feast day is not the day of his martyrdom. Love the trivia. <laughs> it just you know so so much adds adds to this you know, and we could go on you know yeah. talking about a few verses for over a half hour if we wanted to. Right. And it's just. So we're at Matthew fourteen twelve through 21. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it and came and told Jesus, which when Jesus had heard, he retired thence by a boat into a desert place apart. And the multitudes, having heard of it, followed him on foot out of the cities. And he cometh forth, saw a great multitude and had compassion on them. And healed their sick. And when it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a desert place, and the hour is now past. Send away the multitudes, that going into the towns, they may buy themselves of victuals, food. But Jesus said to them, They have no need to go. Give you them to eat. They answered him, We have not here but five loaves and two fishes who said to them, Bring them hither to me. And when he had commanded the multitude to sit down upon the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fishes, looking up to the heavens, and blessed and brake and gave loaves to disciples, and the disciples to the multitudes. And they all ate and were filled, and they took up what remained, twelve full baskets of fragments, And the number of them that did eat was 5,000 men besides women and children. So one of the most prevalent images in the catacombs is the the image of the feeding of the 5,000. The church was expressing deep spiritual realities in, in simple images. So Jesus takes the five loaves and two fish and blessed, broke, and gave. So this was the ritual, the daily Jewish meal that culminates in, in the Eucharist celebration of communion with God. So Jesus said he is the bread of life. 
according to the manna as just a type. Manna that sustained the Israelites in the desert for 40 years was only a type. And Jesus told the apostles that they would be fishers of men. Here, Jesus as the son of man, the Messiah, who even raised people from the dead, is showing how he can take a small amount of substance and expand and grow it miraculously to feed, to sustain as many of his creatures as needed. I mean, he, he talked about uh, uh, blessed are those who believe without seeing, but he gave us, you know, just in the scriptures, so many visual images uh, in order to actually show us the Eucharist. And uh, so we take all these images together and it just it gives a real blessing of how we understand the you know, the Eucharist and, and what it does to our souls and what it does to others. I mean, you could almost see it as, you know, people leaving church and a million, you know, streams of light goes out and subdues Satan on earth, the demons on earth as the Eucharist around the world. And we see this imagery of the mystical body here. And uh, the mystical body is perpetuated through time by the sacraments. So this is why Paul can say those who partake of the one bread are part of the one body. At the Last Supper, Jesus united the manna from heaven with the establishment of the true Passover and the true Lamb of God that he is when he said, this is my body, blessed, broke, and gave. So if the Eucharist was not true, then there never would have been a Jewish Passover. There would never have been manna from heaven. There would never have been the bread of the presence in, in the holies overshadowed by the consecrating Shekna, uh, the Holy Spirit. The priests would never have ate of the bread of the presence on the Sabbath or rest in Christ. There would never have been the establishment of the true Passover for the general redemption of the world, which is the Holy Mass. Jesus says, do this in memory of me, which in the Greek, the memories in nominesis or makes memorial present once again fulfilling many Old Testament covenant oaths and memorials. So therefore, Paul would never have said, for as often as you shall eat this bread and drink this cup, you will show the death of the Lord until he comes again. You would not be able to show the death of the Lord until he comes again. Paul would never have said, we have an altar at which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat of, because we would not have anything worthy of the Father to consecrate on this altar image the apostles are also acting as mediators between Jesus and the crowds in a precursor to performing their priestly office and giving the people a type for the Eucharist to come. And uh, we'll go back to Haddock to get a little more from uh, insight on this. And forth with Jesus, in this we have the genuine picture of a Christian life. After eating of the miraculous bread, we must, like the disciples, prepare ourselves for labor. As bread was given, Elias to enable, given Elias, enable to, uh, enable for him to walk 40 days in the mountain of, to the mountain of God. So the blessed Eucharist, the true heavenly bread, is given us that we may be able to support the hardships to which we are exposed. We here also see the ardent love of the disciples for their Lord, since they are unwilling to be separated from him, even for a moment. Uh, the Flaccus, Flactus, <laughs> that's the name of somebody, <laughs> also adds that we're unwilling for him to go, 
ignorant how he could return to them. That name sounds more like the name of a dinosaur than a person, but anyway. <laughs> anyway. I have no problem, you know, they're able to get that one. <laughs> right. You know, it's interesting. One of the, the small little details, you know, sometimes we gloss over these small little details and don't pick up on them. Thousand, not counting women and children. Wow. I saw that. <laughs> so, so think about this. If the average Jewish family was a wife and three kids, and I don't think that's a stretch. <laughs> the Jewish yeah. families were large. If the average Jewish family was a wife and three kids, this was 20,000 people that were fed. So, um, but isn't it fascinating that Protestants failed to see the feeding of the 5,000 in its Eucharistic content? In John's Gospel, this miracle is placed just before the Bread of Life discourse, Luke, to make just yep. that point. And they seem to see it only in the context of Jesus being able to multiply the effect of our material gifts. But Jesus goes to great pains to warn us not to work solely perishable food. In fact, in again, in John's Gospel, Jesus actually admonishes those who followed him because of the miracle of the fish and loaves. Oh, so you, so you basically you're just following me because you think you can get a free lunch. Do not work for food that perishes. So they 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 missed the entire point, and he's emphasizing that they missed the entire point. This is a Eucharistic miracle, just like the manna falling from the heaven was a Eucharistic miracle. But the Pharisees totally missed it. They said, "What shine can you show us?" That we must believe in you. Our, our, you know, our fathers gave us bread from heaven, and Jesus corrected them. No, 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 no. I am the bread from heaven. <laughs> so, they, 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 they focused on the sign, and they missed what the sign was pointing to. And we see this over and over and over again. But the same error is repeated today by our Protestant brothers and sisters who completely missed what this is about. Then he had so, so much patience. You know, in John 6, you know, after he'd given this full discourse, after saying, unless you eat my flesh, drink my blood, you shall have no life in you, because it's Christ's life. He goes, what if you were to see the Son of Man rise to where he was before? Then would you believe? You know? Right. I, I could almost see his human side there, you know, just saying, then would you believe? You know, what did they see in Acts 1? Exactly that. To what's it the going Eucharist? to take? <laughs> what what's it going to take for you to believe me? <laughs> you can almost sense the frustration. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So we're on to Matthew fourteen twenty two through thirty three. And forthwith Jesus obliged his disciples to go up into the boat and to go before him over the water till he dismissed the people. And having dismissed the multitudes, he went to a mountain alone. Uh, he went into a mountain alone to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat in the midst of the sea was tossed with the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in, forth, in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking upon the sea. And they seen him walking upon the sea were troubled, saying, It is an apparition. 
and they cried out in fear. And immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good heart, it is I, fear ye not. And Peter, making answer, said, Lord, if it be thou bid me come to thee upon the waters. And he said, Come. And Peter, going down out of the boat, walked upon the water to come to Jesus. But seeing the wind strong, he was afraid. And when he began to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand, took hold of him, and said to him, O thou of little faith, why dost thou doubt? And when they were up into the boat, the wind ceased. And they that were in the boat came and adored him, saying, Indeed, thou art the Son of God. So Jesus goes off to pray by himself, and the apostles get on the boat to cross over into Gentile territory here. And the apostles are without Jesus when the, when the storm came upon them. The wind can represent the hostile forces of the world against the bark of Peter. Uh, without focusing on Christ, the, the world becomes overwhelming. So the disciples were, were first frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost, uh, including thinking they were going to drown. They, they, you know, they see a figure of a man walking across the water. Yeah, I, I think uh, we all would be pretty freaked out about that. <laughs> yeah, I would have to imagine so, yeah. <laughs> so in this imagery, it, it, it is Simon, who, who God named Rock, who is the one to go beyond natural reason and understanding of matter, liquid in this case. And through his faith the, and dependence on Jesus to truly being the Messiah, bids Jesus to, to call him out uh, on water. So before this incident, the apostles were already performing miracles, you know, through Christ. So Peter's faith was building here. And Peter walks out on uh, onto the water. But Peter here is also being used as an example of how we drown in our own fallen nature when we take our eyes off of Christ. So when members of the church do, do so, uh, also, Peter, when he, when realizing that he was sinking, called upon the name of the Lord, and, and Jesus saved him. So the, I'll read from Haddock's on this, too. So, and immediately, Jesus, five miracles are here wrought. First, Christ walks upon the water. Two, enables Peter to do the same. Three, when Peter begins to sink, preserves him. Four, the tempests. Five, the ship is immediately, which may be mystically explained thus, a Christian is with uh, Jesus Christ to tread underfoot the whole world with the whirlpools of earthly distractions, while God calms all temptuous passions, temptations, and persecutions, and leads him with faithful and continued support to the harbor of eternal rest and and life. And for those of you, your microphone broke out uh, for just a second, so I want to repeat. Number five was the ship is immediately in port. The ship is immediately in port, is what is what Luke said. You know, Luke, this is important stuff because this is where God loses so many, and even for years, me. Um, we can get our minds around God having to save us from the messes that we get ourselves into. And, and we can, because we can draw a, a, a direct link. 
X happened to me because I did Y. But it's it's the storms of life that throw us, especially when the storms of life happen at times when we're trying the hardest to serve God. Okay? The death of a child, for example. A natural disaster that destroys everything you own. You didn't do anything to cause this. You didn't seem to do anything to deserve this. And we desire God to preserve us from the storm. And sometimes God preserves us from the storm. But sometimes God saves us in the storm. All right? And sometimes God saves us by the storm. And if salvation is by faith alone, God allowing these valueless sufferings would make God cruel. If these sufferings don't have any value, then then God's cruel. He's a monster. And it's a contradiction. It's a contradiction of the entire notion of a just and loving God to presume he would allow horrific sufferings to come into someone's life without them having a great value. And, and I mean, I'm sure right off the top of your head, you give a thousand examples of families that have endured unimaginable stuff, stuff that they didn't cause, stuff that didn't happen because of anything that they did. And this is that hardest question to answer. Why does God allow innocent people to suffer? It's part of the unsearchable mystery of, of, of who God is because God can see the whole picture. And again, I'll reiterate, sometimes he saves us from the storm. Sometimes he saves us in the storm. And sometimes he saves us through the storm. Yeah, it's, uh, that's definitely a wonder. You know, Paul says, I make up for what was lacking in the sufferings of Christ on my own flesh for his body, which is the church. And, uh, we look at suffering as actually a grace, you know, because and, it, and it's in, hard in the midst of the body of Christ. Yeah, it's hard, yeah. Luke. When you when you when you look at unspeakable suffering, when you look at child trafficking, children who who are assaulted, you know, murdered. I mean, these horrific things: babies murdered in their mother's womb. These are horrific, horrific things, and 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 you. Why why doesn't God intervene? Why doesn't God stop it? These are the questions that that search our hearts, and we don't know the answers to them. I'm not, we're not sitting here. Me and Luke are not sitting here tonight saying we have all the answers, uh, but we do know this. We do know that God desires the salvation of each person. And everything that happens in our lives, whether it's caused by God or whether it's allowed by God, God is using for that ultimate ultimate purpose to to facilitate the saving of each person. Now, some people are not going to be saved. Then they're not going to be saved through their own fault because they refuse to cooperate with that grace. But the the mystery of suffering, especially suffering in the innocent, is very very difficult to unravel and it's something that has to be apprehended by simple faith it there's no other way to apprehend it luke it has to be by faith i think it was job said uh god speaking to him 
ways, my ways are a thousand times above your ways. So, and we, you know, we say the word infinity, but we really can't even, you know, come close to 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 imagining it. And so, in the concept of infinity, and God knowing every single one of those souls that that suffer, everything that's been in their minds, you know, we we don't know if. Uh, what's happening there is for the good of the person or the good mm-hmm. of another person. You know, that and, may be. And the thing about it is, the thing about it is this suffering is inescapable. It's inescapable. And it's sown among, just like the tears are sown among the wheat, the suffering is sown among the joy. I'll give you a perfect example. On December 25th, what do we celebrate? Celebrate the birth of Christ, the most joyous event that, that, that you could imagine, right? Mm-hmm. But three three days later, the 28th, what do we commemorate? The slaughter of the innocents, when Herod murdered all the all of all the babies. That's that's right in the middle of the Christmas season. We're still in the Christmas season between Christmas Day and Epiphany. And we have this horrific event that's right in the middle of the Christmas season. So it it it, it just goes to show that suffering is is inescapable. It's part of the story that we all. It's part of the salvation story, and it it would be. You know, it's too easy for people to understand a God that just doesn't allow any suffering in the world. That that's a God that makes sense to us, but as you said. His ways are above our ways. And I'm sure it's, it's, it's also tied to Christ actually, you know, doing some of that suffering too. Uh, so, I mean, uh, to unite with our suffering, we see God's, you know, suffering for us. So there's definitely, you know, a lot more to it than we could even put into words. Amen. So we'll go on to Matthew fourteen thirty-three through 36. And they that were in the boat came and adored him, saying, Indeed, thou art the Son of God. And having passed the water, they came into the country of Genesar. And when the men of that place had knowledge, sent into all that country and brought to him all that were diseased. And they besought him that they might touch but the hem of his garment. And as many as touched were made whole. The fringes were attached to the prayer shawl. So those who were compelled to touch the fringe were committing to an act of faith uh, through the touch. Also, here we have support for for Catholic veneration of relics. Yeah, and it's very interesting that we see this repeated in the Acts of the Apostles, that that that. Uh, there's there's one scene where those who that that people wanted to touch just the handkerchief that belonged to Paul or or to have Peter's shadow cast upon them. Uh, so that this this idea of not only contact with the saints but contact with the things that had contact with the saints. You know, we're getting this whole concept of first-class relics and second-class relics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Here's the foundation for it right here. When I get into debates with uh, Protestants about, uh, you know, them showing me uh, like uh, an old monastery with a ton of bones in it, probably from like the Black Plague or something like that. But 
they're members of the church, all you know, all the bones. And so, uh, so I, I asked them, well, you know, what came first, relics or scary movies? You know, <laughs> these bones are people who received the Eucharist, and Christ says, you know, those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in Him. So we are honoring these, you know, the, these bones because they are people who lived mm-hmm. in Christ in the sacramental life. And, and speaking of yet, bones, uh, what about Joseph? This is the point that I make to them. What about Joseph? And I'm talking about Old Testament Joseph, not to, not New Testament Joseph. They sure made a big deal about his bones, didn't they? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So it's uh, yeah, it's it, it's just kind of built up, you know, in 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 that uh, more of that literalist idea we talked about. <laughs> so we're actually finished with the chapter. So, and, ladies uh, and gentlemen, we have officially reached the halfway point of this. <laughs> so we have uh, six episodes down, six episodes to go. Which, uh, by my math, let's see, one, two, three, let's just look at this, four, five, six, it's going to, we're, we're going to be wrapping this up. If we stay on the same pace, we'll be wrapping this up the Monday before Thanksgiving. So that's what we're on, that's what we're on pace to do. And uh, Luke, I'm I'm thoroughly enjoying this. It's it's given me, you know, it's all already was one of my absolute favorite books of the Bible, um, but my uh, but my joy of it is, is is even increased. And I know that as we near the end of it, we're going to be uh, looking at which book uh, we we might tackle next. And I was thinking um, maybe John's Gospel because John's Gospel is a little bit different than the other three. He, he, he yep. deals in themes yep. rather than in uh, – There's the wet piece of the lamb. That is so deep, but you don't see it on the surface, but it is so deep. Right. So maybe we'll do that. Maybe we'll do John's Gospel next, but uh, we got uh, about six weeks to, to kind of hem that out and figure out what we're going to do. Uh, meanwhile, if, you, if you'd uh, bless us with a, with a prayer so we can wrap this up tonight. And then I'll see you in a week. I'm just going to keep ending with the Our Father because at the end, our Protestant brothers and sisters should be praying with us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Amen. St. Matthew, pray for us.